moving your career further faster. That's the mission behind Cascading Leadership. Each week, we're bringing you stories of women, immigrants, members of the global majority who have risen to the ranks of senior leadership in the world of business. Get ready to gather the insights of some of the world's best business leaders and apply those to your career. If you're interested in sales and marketing effectiveness, organizational effectiveness, talent strategy, DEI, or HR tech, tune in. We're going to share with you what they don't teach you in business school. Welcome to the show. All right, welcome back to the Cascading Leadership, the show. I am your host, Lawrence Brown, and... I'm also your host, Jim Canitro. Awesome. We got to work on that intro. (laughs) So we are back, and as you all are aware, this is a show that we're talking about leadership. And the last episode, you had the amazing good fortune of being able to hear a little bit about me and what my journey has been and our why behind why we believe the show is important. And I gave my perspective. We will also be talking a little bit today with Dr. Jim. And we just want to also be mindful of always giving credit where credit is due. And the music today is from Martin Shellikins. And the song is Riviera. It's it's an amazing song. I I really like it a lot. I think it will help to uh, underscore in a melodic way what it is that we're doing as far as cascading leadership. So let's just jump right into it. Jim, you want to tell us a little bit about yourself, your early beginnings, similar to what we did last week in the second episode. Yeah, sure. There's part of me that wants to be kind of cornball and launch into my terrible Dr. Evil impression. The details of my life are quite inconsequential. (laughs) (laughs) I told you it's a terrible impression, but I think some of the common ground, and that's a big theme for our show in general, is how do we establish common ground amongst all of everybody out there that's coming from all sorts of different places? You and I have very similar backgrounds in terms of where we came from. We're both immigrants. I was actually born in India and spent my first seven years there before I came to the US, and I was South Indian. It's always interesting to me when I look at where I am now and think about some of the conversations about race and class and also all that sort of stuff and put it in context into where I came from. I don't want to presume the race and class issues that exist here are nowhere near the same stratosphere as what exists in India. It's very common in India, even within the same state that you come from, to have huge issues because you were born in one part of the state versus another. Mm -hmm. Geographically across the subcontinent, North Indians and South Indians are always in this contest about who are the real Indians to the point where there are certain work environments where hiring managers have to be really disciplined about what the team structure is, because even when you come over here, there's that regional conflict that can pop up. So it's always struck me as pretty interesting given you know where I've come from. And to give you even more perspective, I think if we're talking in terms of origin stories, my origin story, the reason why I got to the US is literally because one day when my mom took me grocery shopping, I was probably three or four at the time. I don't remember this, but she tells a story the in, all the time. I saw an apple and think in your mind what an apple 
costs around here. Mm -hmm. I had seen an apple for the first time in a store and I wanted it. And because we're in India, my mom didn't, couldn't afford it. And I melted down in the store and created a big scene. Shocker, me dramatic. And that was the moment that my mom decided I can't live the rest of my life in this country where I can't provide something as basic as a fruit to my kids. And that started the journey that, that eventually ended up here. Now, that gives you a perspective on what being poor really means. And relative to India, we weren't poor because there are a lot of people there that can't even afford rice. In the mm -hmm. grand scheme of yep. things, it's a whole different thing. But that's the world that I came from. I got here when I was seven. And there were so many things that I had never seen before, like how an American grocery store or how a grocery store in the Western world is. Yeah, It blew my mind. Like I had no concept of that level of abundance. There was other things like I'd never been on an airplane and I remember flying into uh, Heathrow to transfer to another plane to go to New York. And as I'm coming in, I remember seeing the cars from high up and I was thinking, holy cow, everywhere other than India is awesome because look at all those little toy cars. And I'm asking my dad if I can have <laughs> one of those cars. I get into New York. One of my first memories, we, we came in, in December. So I'm from South India, tropical, like more tropical than Florida. And we flew into New York. We flew into New uh, LaGuardia and I was always first in line to get off the plane. And this is winter. And at the time they didn't have the terminals. They had those little trucks with the stairs that came over there and they opened the door. And the only thing that I see are the railings on the truck on the stairs. And I'm thinking, holy crap, America's phenomenal. They have sugar everywhere. And I grabbed a handful of snow and uh -huh. stuck it in my mouth because I thought it was sugar, mm -hmm. seven-year-old kid, and found to my great disappointment, it wasn't sugar. But that those are my first memories of that journey here. And I say all that because I look at my life now and I have three sons. My three sons are in a position being in this country, never to have experienced that sort of thing. Yeah. They generally will never be in a position where if they go to the store and want a fruit, we'll have to say no to them mm -hmm. because we can't afford it. Thankfully, knock on wood and whatever else that you, you want to do. And my worldview is shaped by that entire experience. It's really rare in any other part of the world for you to completely change your place in the world in less than a generation. And yep. that's what makes this country great. As, as much as people might want to like crap all over the place about, hey, this place is terrible. There are very few places that allow you to do that in less than a generation. Now, that doesn't mean that the, that the country doesn't have its faults. Part sure. of the reason that we're, we're doing the show is that it fully lives up to that promise for every, because there are people that don't get to benefit from that. And that's why we were talking about this. Sorry, I got on my soapbox, but that tends to happen. No, I, think it's a, I think it's a great perspective for people to understand. As you were talking about your background, I think about growing up poor, but the poor that I grew up in was really in the U.S. I don't really remember necessarily being poor in the Bahamas, but my wife is from Haiti. And I, I tell people a lot of times that when you go to a third world country, you do come back with a different level of appreciation for 
what America is. And again, to your point, it does. it's not to say that it's faultless, but I think it is an important perspective to have more of a, a global view. So when you talked a little bit about the impact of the transition from India to the U.S., but if there was one element that stands out in your mind, like you drew the correlation between your upbringing and, again, the transition and your sons, what would you pull from that? What would you say is probably the one defining moment in, in that early part of your life? I don't know if I can necessarily point to any one thing. I think about this in terms of what did my parents instill in me? Mm-hmm. And both of us grew up poor, but I'm not going to put words in your mouth. But I would venture to guess that our parents did a really good job of making us never feel like we were really poor. Yeah. We didn't know we were poor because all the important stuff we had. I think if I draw from my parents' experience in raising me, they focused on the important stuff, mm-hmm. which is make sure that you have everything that you need mm-hmm. and then anything that you don't have you can achieve by focusing on excelling scholastically. Everybody makes fun of the the whole concept of the Asian F. I had that in my family. If I brought home an A minus or a B plus, there were problems. So the value of education, the value of achievement is the gateway. And that's similar to your background too. That's the gateway to everything else that you want, but you can't have right now. So it's interesting. My wife looks at me sideways when I, my kids are 10, seven and three. Sorry. I'm a guy. I can't keep that Um, that one a secret. And the two older ones will have like progress reports and report cards or whatever it is that they have. And they're coming home happy with four out of five. And I go into my default, which is four out of five is okay. Why didn't you get five out of five? And and my wife will give me one of these or give me the look. I think there's a lot of things that you can't control. What you can control is your effort and your focus in achieving academically. And that's going to be something that carries forward to them because I want them to be just like most parents or every parent, I would imagine. I want them to be three times further ahead by the time they're my age than I am now. And one of the gateways to that is to apply yourself academically and attack the achievement end from there. So I don't know if that necessarily answers the question, but that's the thing that that it ties basically my parents to me, to my kids is that focus. What I heard and got from it was the, so you're talking about the element of how important education is, how important knowledge is, uh, that work ethic, so that piece where we talk about, I'm the same with both my boys in terms of them pushing themselves academically, not you know going or for second best. I think maybe the drive is a little different, right? I think culturally, sometimes it depends. So what's your reason for pushing them like that, like your boys to be the next level? At some level, it ties back to one of the very first conversations that you and I had, and we talked about it in an earlier episode. You use different language in that conversation, but it's basically this stuff doesn't wash off. Yep. And that's the reality of the world. I don't want them walking through the world using that as a crutch. Mm -hmm. So that's not where I'm going with that. I don't want them to feel like they are somehow downtrodden or victimized based off of that stuff, because that leads to, in my opinion, it leads to a bunch of other negative things that I don't really want them to think about. I want Mm -hmm. them to be aware of what their pigment is, because there are things that they won't get away with that other people might, 
simply because of what they look like. Now, setting that aside, the basis for my focus on academics, it's a great equalizer. It, it's something that nobody can take away from you. If you achieve and continue to achieve, at some point, you earn a seat at whatever table based on what's between your ears. Mm -hmm. So my expectation for them, and, I, and I'm looking at myself in the camera, I'm turning into like total tiger dad. My expectation for them is there may be a lot of things that I'll say, hey, it's not that critical, but that academic piece your ability to critically think through situations, your ability to command a room based on what you know and what you've learned and your curiosity, that's mm -hmm. a non-negotiable. You have to bring that yeah. to the table because that's what is going to actually propel you forward for the rest of your life. So if, right. you, if you slack off on that stuff now, it's going to be very difficult for you to catch up down the road. And then that the melanin component starts kicking in. And I don't sure. even want that to be a factor at some level, whether it's at this point, whether it's true or not, I still want them to be aware of the message that because you are a certain way, the expectations for you to get the same thing, you're going to have to work and achieve more mm -hmm. to get access to the same stuff. I don't yeah. know if that's a real thing now, but yeah. that's how I feel. I've yeah. always been wired that way and, and it contributes to, you can call it a chip on my shoulder, but that's how I've always been. It's something that my parents instilled or indoctrinated in me when I was younger is like, Hey, as Americanized as you are, as much of a cultural chameleon as you are, mm -hmm. there's some stuff that you can't hide. Yeah. So take that into account as you move forward, because you're never going to be, to some people, you're never going to be fully considered one of them. So you have to use your brain to make yourself as close to one of them or one of us, whatever you want to call it as you can. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That sounds really yeah. bad, but that's... Yeah, no, I get what you're saying, because I, I think a lot of times folks from ethnically diverse populations understand this, right? It's a recurring theme. And I think that everyone doesn't always necessarily understand that, because I think that there are some elements like what you're talking about is that it's the, I think, I guess you could call it indoctrinization, right? But it is the lived experience of our parents that help to guide, you know, the decisions that we make. And so that's one of the things that you keyed in on. And I was thinking about it when I was talking last week, when you were interviewing me and I actually came up with something and I'm like, you know what, when we were talking about when we recognized the element of race. And I remember there is a there is an element called the talk that happens in many African-American homes. And I do remember actually having the talk with my mother and her trying to stumble through explaining the difference. But at the same time, I think that she didn't want me to feel like I was hamstringed in some sort of way, similar to what you were describing. And so I think that's very challenging. I think that oftentimes many of us take that into our young uh, adult lives and into our careers. And unfortunately, there are times where we where it may come to fruition, where we see it. You can't necessarily put a finger on it, but you know that one of the things that I think you and I have joked about is uh, culture and that whole idea of culture fit and what the buzz is for that. It's yeah. one of the most bogus terms in talent acquisition I've ever heard of. <laughs> and I, I spent a lot of time finding great candidates, opportunities for jobs. And it used to drive me nuts when I would hear that from, mm -hmm. you know, hiring managers or HR professionals, because it's a lot of it is just BS. Yeah.
Yeah. So we'll get to the, your career element, but let's talk a little bit more about like the, as you progressed in life, when you got yeah. to say your high school and, and really were kicking into the, the academics and young adult life, what was that like? I draw out a timeline. So when I landed here, I might've been a year or two in and Indiana Jones, the first movie came out. And by the time I was in like third or fourth grade that everybody had seen that movie and there was always like, I spoke pretty much like I do now. Didn't have Mm -hmm. an accent. I've been speaking English forever. People never assumed unless I volunteered. You could see that I was brown, but you -hmm. you couldn't tell where I was from. And then when I'd share that I was actually born in India and this was in the 80s. So there's a whole different concept of how you talk to and about people or with people now that didn't exist back then. So when Indiana Jones came out, I think it was Indiana Jones and Temple of Doom. There's a scene where they're at this banquet of this Maharaja's place or whatever. And one of the dishes that they brought out was basically a monkey with the skull cap that you could take off and people would be eating monkey brains at, at the table. And the reason why I bring this up is that there was all sorts of pop culture things that painted India a certain way. And I would have to answer these questions as I'm as if I'm like some sort of UN ambassador. I was like, no, I've I didn't even know eating monkey brains or actually full on live snakes was a thing. I've never heard of that in India, but whatever. But there was always this sense of I'm pretty close in the in crowd, but I'm not like in the in crowd. And that sort of weird middle ground was something that, you know, all through my academic life, it wasn't something that I was actively aware of or like processing that, Oh, my Mm -hmm. life sucks. I've always been a pretty optimistic person while being a realist, but it was always this outsider perspective. And maybe it was just me. It was probably just me, but that, that existed throughout my youth because I would always get these little comments or whatever. Junior high school and high school, I went to Catholic school and most of my experience at those was predominantly Caucasian environment, very little diversity in those schools. But I tended, like you, I was an athlete, not at the same level that you were. I ran track and I was in wrestling and I, I ran with a bunch of different crowds and I fit in to the extent that I wanted to fit in with everybody. So whether it was the nerdy crowd or the athletes or whatever, I was able to blend, but I wasn't really tight with any one group. Part of that was probably just my general aloofness. And part of it probably has some other factors to to go in it too. But I think if I'm distilling out why there was the distance between me and everybody else, Mm -hmm. it probably had more to do with my parents saying, hey, you better not get too crazy with Yaha time because you bring home anything less than an A, we're going to have a conversation. (laughs) I think it was more about that where I had a focus on that thing more than anything else. Basically, it was keep that together so I can do all this other stuff. And I Mm -hmm. couldn't go like all out like some of my peers did where you know what happens in high school. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Um, So I I couldn't go that route because if my grades took a dip, all of that'd be over and I'd be in like a Canitrial prison camp. (laughs) Yeah. High school was, it was fine. Anybody that says that's like the best years of your life. I have no idea where that came from because that'd be pretty damn depressing (laughs) if that was. College was great. I had a great college experience, but again, I was a member of a fraternity. Well, actually I never left. So I still am a member of a fraternity. 
but it was still that 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 separation. So it's always been this sort of outsider looking in to some degree. And I always just chalked it up to I'm um, even when I was young, I was a grumpy old man anyways. So there was a lot of get off my lawn stuff that yep. that I had that probably made it difficult for other people to like connect at a really deep level with me, but I was okay with that. So I can't really say that there was any big revelatory moments in there. I had a wide group of friends because normally the people that I gravitated to were in all sorts of different groups. Like yeah. I, I was, I was in an honors fraternity. I was in a social fraternity. I was in sports, all this other stuff. And it was just, I've always operated with this. I'm probably going to drop dead tomorrow. So I need to squeeze 32 hours into a 24 hour day. That kind of gave me wide latitude to navigate a lot of different social dynamics. Yeah. So I, I think though, that you said that there's nothing that really stands out, but, but what I hear, and I think it does actually stand out are two things that I know about you very well. One of them is you have an incredible work ethic. And secondly, is I think that you are someone who has always had the ability to move into different circles pretty effortlessly. And so I would say that when you think about what you just described, that to me, listening to you, it sounds like that may have been the parts that maybe didn't seem so pivotal but they have certainly led you into who you are today. And I would say probably into the next phase of your life, right? I mean, that's fair. It certainly would explain why I've spent basically my entire career in some sort of sales function. And when you look at the fundamentals of what's necessary to be successful in sales, the absolute fundamental of fundamental things about sales is figuring out how to connect with somebody else on a human level. Absolutely. And if you can't do that well, you're going to have a really short and really crappy sales career. I can't say that I've had an exceptional sales career. It's been good, but I obsess about that thing. How do I look at a profile of a stranger that I don't know and say something meaningful or connect with them in a meaningful way and start building that relationship. I've always, I wouldn't say it's easy. It's actually a lot of research to do that. I think your platform though might be that one of the other things, like I said, that I, I have you know learned about you over the years is, and one of the reasons that I admired you to the extent that I hired you was the fact that you were naturally inquisitive, had really great questions in that space. When I was interviewing people, I was actually observing them before they even said word one as I had them sit out in front. And I watched to see whether or not they were looking at what was happening in the branches and what their facial expressions were, what their body body was telling me and, and those sorts of things. And you were definitely someone who sat forward in your chair. You were looking at making expressions like, why would the person have done that? And so th those are were smart, small tells for me that it was like, this is someone who is naturally inquisitive. And, and I think that's a great launch pad, right? To have on your team is someone who is naturally inquisitive. I don't know if I was overt about it. Some of that stuff just happens on autopilot. I don't even realize it. And I, I was chuckling when you said you sit there and watch people's facial expressions. My facial expression is pretty, pretty standard. I probably look like I'm going to set something on fire <laughs> <laughs> to the point where if I'm in a conversation and I have my normal speaking face, I'll say, Hey, I'm not mad. So don't pay any attention to this. It's just me talking about something. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely remember because I think I can honestly go back to those days when we were as a team. I remember virtually every person that I interviewed, at least that I hired, because that those are the sorts of elements that stood out for me. So you definitely were someone very observant and, and, and looking at things. And so I think that will probably take us into part two, right, of 
who is Dr. Jim. Yeah, I think that's a good stopping point. Hopefully this conversation for the audience wasn't too boring. I could have told a lot more stories, I suppose. (laughs) But yeah, that's a good stopping point as we transition into sort of the, the career aspect of it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Cascading Leadership. We hope you enjoyed the story as much as we did. Make sure you subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast player. Follow us on YouTube, TikTok, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Leave us a review. Tell a friend. If you're interested in sponsoring the show, reach out to me at jim at cascadingleadership.com. Tune in next time for another great episode that will help you move your career further faster.